Emmanuel, good morning. want to rejoice today. Uh, if you were in Sunday school, you already met from Edinburgh, Scotland, Liam Garden, who is a missionary who pastors there, but also leads a church planting network known as Pillar uh, in that area of the world. So we're so thankful to have him here today, and really his ministry has been a great blessing already. So during the preaching, you'll hear him, and then hopefully you'll have a chance to talk to him afterwards as well, and affirm and rejoice in what the Lord's doing through him. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm very thankful to God for uh, your welcome this morning already, and uh, for Josh's welcome to, I count a massive privilege uh, to uh, preach in any pulpit uh, at the invitation of a fellow brother in ministry. Uh, if he runs me out halfway through, it's a bad thing, okay? Uh, but let's, uh, if we may, uh, let's uh, pray together before we uh, consider this passage that Jim has just read for us. Our Father, you and your words say that uh, this is the one whom I will esteem. Uh, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, uh, as we consider the wonder of this passage today, would you help us to do it with that character and attitude, with that humility and that contrition? Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the UK, uh, I was born in 78, I grew up watching 80s TV, which is generally rubbish, okay, no matter what country you're from. But there was this one thing that our family used to sit and watch every Saturday night, it was called uh, That's Life. It was hosted by a lady called Esther Ranson, who for many years was just the face of Saturday night TV. This Life was a uh, a program where they had guests on with all kinds of, some weird, some very, very wonderful stories. And there was one that sticks in my mind in particular, something you can watch on YouTube later, actually. Uh, it is, uh, in 1988, there was one particular episode where a man called Nicholas Winton was invited onto the show. And it is one of the most heartwarming and tear-jerking bits of TV that you will ever watch. So grab a Kleenex, be prepared, don't say I didn't warn you. Um, Nicholas Winton sat in the audience that night at Ranson's invitation because of something that he had kept a secret for 50 years. It had just come to light. In 1938, when Hitler's troops were marching towards Czechoslovakia... Thirsty for Jewish blood, Winton, a 28-year-old stockbroker from London, planned and personally attended to a rescue mission that saved the lives of 667 children. In 19, uh, and the thing is, nobody really knew about it. Not even the children he had rescued knew who rescued them until just two weeks before this particular show. So Winton sat there watching Esther Ranson uh, retell this remarkable salvation story. And she had this little book, a, a, a little accountant's record of all the names of the children and where they had ended up. And as she flicked through page after page of the rescued children's names, she paused over one, Vera Gissen. And then she revealed to Nicholas Winton that Vera Gissen is in fact the lady who is sitting 
on your right. And he turned to her in absolute shock. She turned round to him like a kid who'd just realised it's Christmas morning. You know, she was so delighted. Her face absolutely beamed. She embraced him. She kissed him on the cheek. And then his hand, which she then held and squeezed to a high degree of discomfort, it looked like, Winton just sat there and started to weep. And so did the millions watching. But just as everyone gathered themselves for this beautiful moment of TV, you know, everyone's starting to put away their handkerchiefs. Ranson said, well, I would like to ask one more question. Is there anyone else in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you please stand up? Now, every single person within four rows of this man stood to their feet. And it was absolutely beautiful. You know, even the dads who were trying to compose themselves on that day were in floods of tears. They looked at him, all of them, with faces full of joy, their hands clasped together toward him as a mark of their gratitude and delight. They looked at him, their eyes conveying not just their thanks, but their love. And I start with that because that's what salvation does for a person. If that's how people saved from certain death expressed love for their rescuer, it should be no surprise to see in this passage and in act- actually in your church, people saved from their sins showing even greater expressions of love for Jesus our rescuer. Because Jesus is worthy of extravagant expressions of love, great love. Because we have been forgiven a great debt, and I mean a great debt. Great love is shown to Christ because great forgiveness is known by us sinners. And really, those are the two headings that I want to give us as we walk through this passage. First of all, great love shown. That's verses 36 to 39. Great love shown. Jesus is worthy, friends, of extravagant expressions of love. Look with me, verse 1. The scene is set. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, that's surprising to begin with. Uh, Not just that Jesus is eaten with sinners, but actually that the Pharisee invited Jesus. Uh, To give you some context, three times in the last two chapters of Luke's gospel, uh, you can read that the Pharisees had rejected Jesus' claims and his miracles. In fact, they were already plotting, according to chapter 6, verse 11, what they might do to him. Now, maybe Simon thought this would be an ideal way to snare Jesus, make him say something that would give him the ammo that he needed to report Jesus, or more than that, to be the proud engineer of his downfall. In any case, Jesus accepts Simon's invitation, whatever the the intent, and here they are reclining, no doubt on benches, around a table together, when a woman of a certain reputation walks in. Who is she? Look at the text. Verse 7 says, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now you might say, well, who isn't? We're all sinners. But note the tone of the passage And especially Simon's words identifying this woman as a woman of the city. 
there's very good reason to suspect that a particular kind of sin is being highlighted, that sinner and woman of the city is essentially euphemistic for prostitute. What did she do when she came in? Well, the woman showed great love for Jesus. She broke every social convention in showing it. Everything that she did on that particular occasion cried awkward. Verse 35, to begin with, she turns up. A sinner at a religious man's house. Secondly, verse 36, she stands there sobbing. I mean, that's awkward, isn't it? Imagine having a conversation with someone, you know, in front of you at the dinner table. So how are things in ministry? Yeah, I'm going fine, thank you very much. All the while, somebody over here is just crying. You know, it's going to be awkward. Thirdly, she kisses Jesus' feet. Wow, I mean, having, having allowed her tears to fall onto Jesus' feet, she lets down her hair to dry them. Now, honestly, like she is breaking every kind of social convention here. Back in those days, if there were any parents in the room with their kids, they would be covering their kids' eyes. Because the Talmud, the collection of Jewish teachings, said that back then, this was equivalent to a woman showing her top half in public. But then came the kisses. And these are not the kisses of seduction, friends, but of subjection. Kissing feet back then was a means of communicating happy submission to your king. It's how you recognized loyalty. She kissed his feet. Fourthly, she poured perfume on them. She blows the family inheritance in a single moment of devotion. History shows these alabaster jars of perfume were super expensive, almost a year's wages. They were often kept and handed down, actually, as family heirlooms. But here she is, snapping the neck of the jar, pouring out the most valuable asset on Jesus' feet, the fragrance delighting the upturned noses of everyone gathered. So make no mistake, friends, when you read those two or three verses, this, this isn't just a regular occurrence. This is absolutely stunningly shocking. Now some say, ah, she's confused. Her past prevents her from suitably expressing her gratitude. She's kind of translating her working expressions of love into this act of devotion. It's very improper. Well, that's ridiculous. This is worship. This is love shown in response to great forgiveness known. We don't know how, but somewhere, somehow, she'd heard the gospel. Jesus preached. She believed. She's transformed. Now, the greatness of her love is plain to see in its own right, but compared to Simon's lack of love, which is a deliberate contrast here, it stands out all the more. The woman had shown Jesus great love. But Simon showed no love for Jesus. Now let's remember who it is that dines at his table. This one, this Jesus that he has invited, is the Holy One of Israel, according to Isaiah 54 verse 5. The Holy One of Israel. The prophet that Moses had foretold, according to Deuteronomy 18.15, was sharing dinner with him. The Lord of glory, the resurrection and the life, as we read in John 11, was speaking him to him face to face. The great climactic moment of history that Simon the Pharisee claimed to be living for had arrived. 
And so it should have been for this religious man a deliriously, wonderfully breathtaking honor for him to host the Messiah King as he looked forward to that blessed banquet that is to come. But Simon's not amazed in the slightest. Certainly not after this, the action of the woman. As he looked at Jesus, all he saw was a pretender, a young Nazarene who fancies himself as a prophet. He's not showing Jesus love. He's showing Jesus contempt. He's not even doing him a dignity by inviting him around his table. He's trying to trap him. Now, he's not worshipping Jesus. He's judging Jesus. Look at with me, verse 39. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Well, this guy clearly has not been listening, has he? Jesus hasn't been claiming to be a prophet in Luke's gospel. He's claimed all along to be the Messiah King. The eternal Lord. The incarnate Son of God himself. Declared by his incarnation to be the Son of God. Declared by heaven in his baptism to be the eternal Son. And the second Adam. The Lord God himself. But Simon knows that prophets have God given insight into things. Especially people's sinful condition. And he concludes, well if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Therefore can't be much of a prophet. This is basic math. Little does he know that Jesus at this very moment is judging him and will shortly speak. But before we consider that, let's just pause to ask this question. Which one are we? As we have this deliberate comparison between this sinful woman and a religious Pharisee in this passage, which one are you? Which one am I? Who do we most closely identify with? The woman showing great love for Jesus, grateful, glad, unashamed to show it. Or the Pharisee showing great contempt for Jesus, sneering, judgmental, dismissive. What's fundamentally different between the two, Jesus tells us, is the love that's expressed. And that's how you know. When his great salvation is known, faith in Christ makes all the difference. And it may well be the case that if you're here today and you would not say the forgiveness of sins that I have in Jesus Christ is the best thing in the world. If you can't say the resurrection from the dead is my eternal hope. That his is not only the first resurrection but the one that guarantees mine. Then I wonder what this passage says to you. It identifies you much more with the sinner that Jesus judges. And it invites you to see that you can be like the sinner that he adores for her act of worship. That sin, no matter how it has been, uh, how you have sinned, you can be invited to participate in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. But why do we stand in judgment over him? We think, well, I'm not so sure I believe exactly what he says. Well, look into it more. This is too important to get this wrong. It may be the case that you love your sin too much and you don't want to give up the life that you live. Well, it may be the case that you need to consider where that leads. 
My encouragement for you is to keep listening so that you see by the end of it which one you ought to want to be. The woman. Because she shows such great love because she knows great salvation. When his great salvation is known, it's faith in Christ that makes all the difference. And point two is great salvation known. Now, this is what this parable is all about. Forgiveness awakens in saved sinners an overwhelming sense of love for Jesus. That's what the parable tells us. This parable here is a story of two debtors. Both are in great debt. And a denarius, of course, was about a day's wages back then. And it would take one 50 days to clear the debt and the other 500 days to clear his debt. So one has a greater debt to settle, but both are in debt. In other words, neither has the ability to pay this debtor back. But look with me, verse 42. What did he do? He cancelled the debt of both. He himself absorbs the loss himself to free these debtors from the pain of trying to pay back their loans. Now the question is, which of them would be happy about that cancellation? Well, the obvious answer is both. Both would be delighted, whether it was a 50 or a 500 debt that you had. You'd be like, I don't have to pay a thing. That's great. But who would be much more thankful than the other and likely to express that in effusive ways? Well, Simon knows the answer to this. And so do we. It's the one who owed the greater debt. So this parable represents the two people in the room. And in short, Jesus is saying, this woman, yes, this woman, she's a 500 sinner. She's a 500 sinner. And her act of worship is explained by the fact that she's had her sins forgiven, that her spiritual indebtedness to God is cancelled. And Simon, well, Simon, you're a 50 sinner and you can know the same joy. He hasn't sinned to the extent that she has, but he is still a sinner. But he can be forgiven and can know the same joy because both, note, both debtors in the parable have their debt cancelled. What grace from Jesus to hold that out. It's like Jesus says, come on, Simon, hasn't it clicked yet? You're sitting in judgment, but you too can know this great salvation and rejoice in that. But in order to do that, he needs to come face to face with his own sins. But he doesn't see himself as a sinner. So Jesus then uses her to point out the sinful contempt that he has shown Jesus in order to convict him of that sin. Look with me, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Okay? Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Simon. You broke every social convention by your frosty reception of me. You think that she broke every social convention by the way that she's acted toward me, but you've broken every social convention in the way you acted toward me. You did not show me the courtesy of washing my feet when I came in, but she did. You did not greet me with a welcome kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't dab my head with oil, which is a mark of respect and welcome. Not even a little puff of Paco Rabanne. 
but she gave all she's got to anoint me. You showed me contempt, she showed me love. You don't know who I am, she does. I am the Lord of heaven and earth, worthy of the most effusive and extravagant expressions of love. She is doing what every human being was made to do. To love God with heart, soul, mind and strength. All of them. And that's why Jesus receives her worship. As extravagant as it was. And is not in the slightest bit embarrassed by her acts of love. And only now does he speak, Jesus, directly to the woman. Have you noticed that? It's been a while in coming. Verse 4 to 8, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now let's be clear, Jesus isn't saying to her that this great act of love and devotion has led Jesus to forgive her for her sins. That is not the way salvation works. And that's not the way Jesus intended it. The parable itself makes the order of it clear. Forgiveness of the debt comes first. Love is the expression of response. So her love is evidence of the forgiveness already received. And that's how it is with faith. But what reassurance this is for a woman who feels so deeply about past sin. Who feels so torn and guilty and full of shame for the way that she has lived her life. To sinners as great as she is, forgiveness is hard to grasp. Do you ever know how that feels? When you consider past sins or current struggles, you celebrate by taking the Lord's Supper. You sing some of the songs that we sing about the greatness of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and just think, is it really true? Is it really for me? Do you find it Just that little bit hard to believe. Forgiveness is often hard to grasp. I mean, I look back on my own life and the way I lived before I was a Christian. And at times I still can't quite believe that the Lord forgives me for my sin. I just can't fathom it sometimes. And then when I think of the sins that I commit as one who is already saved... As one who is already rejoicing in all the grace of the gospel that I have received through faith in him. And yet live the way I do. Do you ever, like me, just feel like it's just a bit overwhelming? And it's just a bit hard to grasp. That you're forgiven. That your sins and lawless acts are remembered no more. And that freely he forgives you on account of his blood for the same sins you confessed three weeks ago. No matter how putrid, no matter how filthy they make you feel. At times I still can't quite believe that he forgives me. And yet he does. He absolutely does. It would be to go against his own character to not. It would be a contradiction against his own cross to not. 
And his words to the woman carry the sense that her sins have been and remain forgiven. Nothing's changed since she professed faith. She was forgiven there and then when she did. And she's still forgiven right now, even as she pours out this effusive act of worship on the Savior. But I think she knows that. I think that's why she's so extravagant with her love. But of course, that's not all Jesus says to her. He says, your sins are forgiven, but also, verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you hear that? You're saved by faith, friends. Not by works. Not like these blind guides have told you. You're not made right with God by cleaning yourself up, as if you could. I mean, just ask your friends around you. You know, you're not made right with God just by going into a church service. Like going to Christian, going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to a garage makes you a car. That's not the way it works. Salvation is a gift offered in love. To receive it, you need only believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And then did you hear his reassurance in that passage to her? Your faith has saved you past tense. Go in peace presently. Your sins are forgiven. I love you. You love me. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love that you now know in me. You're free. Free from the lingering effects of guilt. Why labor and self-flagellate over things that I've forgiven you for? You're free. Forgiven. Free from the shame of Satan's accusations. He's a liar. You ever hear him whisper, does God really love you when you're living that way? On account of the Lord Jesus Christ's blood, he absolutely does. Resist the devil and have him flee from you. Any accusation of his will not stick. No matter what he throws at us, nothing sticks because we're covered by the blood of Jesus because our debt is cancelled and our sins are forgiven. So again, if you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, how can a holy God forgive someone their sins? God's answer to that question comes at the cross where Christ paid the debt for our sins. As Christ bore our sins on the cross, he satisfied God's just judgment. That sin that we commit is paid for and paid in full. That debt that we are owed is paid for and paid by Christ on our behalf. He has satisfied God's justice and secured our forgiveness and our peace. So what should you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if not that today, without question, read some more of this. And ask somebody to read it alongside you. But if we are here today and the salvation that we have won through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is the best news. If his forgiveness is to you the most exhilarating and joyous thing that you can re recollect. If the fact of his love for you is absolutely astonishing that 
you really wonder why you do keep inside that little amen and hallelujah that you really want to shout out. Then what does this mean for us? I guess you can ask the question, are we as grateful as she is? Perhaps we need to reflect on the greatness of the sin that we have been saved out of. Not to wallow in it, don't misunderstand me, that would just be to contradict everything I've said over the last 30 minutes. But to consider it. Perhaps we would do well to study more of the character of God and his holiness so that to truly grasp the judgment that we've been saved from. Goodness! Meditate on some of the passages on eternal hell for just five minutes. And you should be the most, we should be the most exuberant and effusive worshippers. And I'm not saying that our worship and our expression needs to be full of emotion and so on. I think we should be. We should be more emotional, I think. But we don't need to be super teary or super expressive with our joy. We actually just need to be joyful. So are we as grateful as she is for this forgiveness? If so, how can you share that? And who should you share that with? Well, firstly, with the Lord God himself, for he alone is your savior. But secondly, with each other. Tell one another, you've no idea, or maybe you do, just how much it stirs our affections for Jesus when we hear one another's evidences of grace. And encouragements. And worship. Oh, that person's praise, that person's gratitude, that person's prayer in the prayer meeting the other night. Wow, it really set me alight. That's the way it works. But not only are we as grateful as she is, are we as expressive and effusive with our worship? And I'm not talking about what you're doing in a Sunday service. I'm talking about with your lives. The act of devotion that we read about in Romans chapter 12. Great love known should produce in us great demonstrations of the love that we know. And my encouragement for you, brothers and sisters, is to put your all into thanking and praising the Lord Jesus for his great salvation. For it truly is wonderful. Shall we pray? Please just take a few moments in the quietness to pray your own prayers and express your own gratitudes and thanks to God and ask him for help in any of the areas that you've identified in these last few moments. Our Father, you are worthy of extravagant expressions of our love. Because in Christ we have been forgiven a great debt. Thank you so much. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.